Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de/nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Akas-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. Featuring Cambridge University's Dr. Chris Smith. This is Ask the Naked Scientists. Friday. From 9 a.m. This is Views Cutting Forward. Only on Cape Talk. And it's a moment when I get to learn a whole lot of stuff. And I also get a sense of where your mind is at and how it works. Uh, that's when you put the questions uh, to, of course, Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist. And, and he answers that. And that I f- find even more fascinating. Uh, so he joins us via Zoom all the way from London. He's a lecturer at the University of Cambridge. Uh, and it's that big appointment on a Friday morning. Welcome, Dr. Smith. Great to have you oh, back. Hi, Clarence. Good to have you back as well. Okay. Um, we, this question came in really early. It came in at nine o'clock. Um, and it reads, and then I, then I just kind of put out a little call, but it reads first, why have scientists, medical research, uh, researchers found it so challenging to understand the process of aging and death? And do you think we'll ever be able to stop, even reverse the aging process? And if so, when a professor of genetics uh, talks about rebooting the DNA code in our cells, is that even scientifically plausible? And is that safe in your opinion? I went to one press conference at a science conference a number of years ago where a scientist stood up and said, I think that the first person who will live to be a thousand has already been born. Now, maybe that's a bit optimistic, but we have already made vast strides in making people live longer. Because if we wound the clock back to just a 100 years, you'd find that the life expectancy of a person in a country like South Africa or a country like England, actually, for that matter, was not very high. And you might expect reasonably to live, if you were a normal member of the population, not high society and rich, you might expect to live into your 40s. Now, that's not to say that people didn't live to be very, very old indeed, but the average person didn't. So something dramatic has changed in the last 100 years that has effectively doubled the life expectancy of the average person in the population of most countries in the world and rising across poorer countries. What's that? Well, it's nothing to do with modern medicine. This is the amazing thing. If you ask people this question, they'll say, it's science, it's medical breakthroughs. Actually, it's just common sense. And the thing that's made the biggest, most dramatic turnaround in people's life expectancy is the food they eat, the water they drink, and the house they live in. And if you give people those things, which are the key ingredients for a healthy body, the body is pretty damn good at taking care of itself and fixing itself and giving us a pretty damn good run at things. Now, we know that people have lived to be within the realms of up to 100 years for many, many hundreds of years because we've got records going back to medieval England, for example, where we can see there were people living a really long time but just not many people made it because not many people had the right living conditions to reduce all the risk which makes us grow old and makes us clap out and makes us age prematurely. If you give the body those things, it tends to really, really make a dramatic difference. The contribution of modern medicine to longevity has been really tiny, to be perfectly honest. And in fact, life expectancy is probably around the world now beginning to fall again, having peaked, because we're now succumbing to diseases of excess. 
we've got a malnourished human population. People have plenty of calories, but they're all the wrong sorts of calories. We're eating the wrong stuff and they're giving us weight problems, diabetes, and they're actually eroding our, our chances of longevity. So why do we age if we don't have that optimal sort of lifestyle set of ingredients? We don't really know. We know that it's probably something to do with the biochemistry running our metabolism. We know that when we make and release energy from the food we eat and feed it to ourselves, that that does have as a byproduct the production of various reactive chemicals that are capable of damaging the materials our cells are made of and the DNA that is the recipe book that those cells rely on. And if you damage the integrity of both of those, then you make them work less efficiently. And if you do that to enough cells often enough, you run out of resources to keep repairing things and eventually things become less efficient. It's like a car. It's great when it's new. As it gets a bit older, it gets scratched and the engine claps out a bit. And you patch it up, use a bit of body filler, respray a few areas, but it still looks a bit tatty. Still works, but it looks a bit tatty. Eventually, things really do get to the point where you can no longer mend and make do and you just need to either replace things or worse throw it away and that's sort of what we do with a human and so really we think that our evolution has programmed us to keep us going for long enough to reproduce rear children rear our family to the point where they are autonomous and capable of rearing their own family and make a societal contribution which is probably why we live longer than our reproductive years because we continue to contribute meaningfully to society but there's not much selective pressure to keep us going beyond that and perhaps that's a good thing because at the moment there are eight billion of us on earth already what would happen if we started living to a thousand right there's a, a couple of other questions in related to aging well we're going to move on um dr smith why are you cleverer than me is your brain wired differently is it partly education nature or nurture we think and not just referring to me specifically but we think that the answer to this question is 50-50. We know that you have to be born with a reasonable genetic hand to play. And the evidence for that is, if we look at, say, our closest relatives, animals like bonobos or chimpanzees, they don't have the brain of a human. They don't have our genes. So something genetically makes us build the brain that we do. So that endows us with the blank canvas that can enable us to do what we do. But without education, without being encouraged, without being supported and helping your brain to develop and maximise its potential to use that blank canvas, you can't achieve anything. So the answer is really, it comes down to potential that's there, having the space to build your building, and then having the education that enables you to build your building on a big base so it can go very high. So we think that what we call intelligence or IQ is about 50% of nature and 50% nurture. Then, um, News and Views team and Dr. Chris, why do I have a sense that way back then many more important discoveries were made? Uh, example, laminated glass, discovery of iodine for the treatment of goiters, to name but two. This in a time when uh, the technology was far more deficient than the present. I completely hold my hat up and, and just take my hat off rather to those people who historically made these amazing intellectual leaps. Isaac Newton, I mean, he was a horrible person by all accounts, and I can say that because he's not going to do me for slander because he's been dead for hundreds of years, but he was 
apart from being a horrible person, clearly an incredible scientist who had these insights, an ability to see things and relationships that, given the background he was working in of what we already knew, it was incredible that he could do that. Then there are the engineers like James Watt and Richard Trevithick who came up with the concepts of how we could use the fact that when you turn a water, when you turn a liquid water into a gas, steam, it gets about a thousand times bigger. And if it gets a thousand times bigger and takes up a thousand times more space, you can use that to create pressure and you could drive something to move and along comes a steam engine and how we can harness that to then move things along rails and have a steam train. This kind of intellectual leap at a time when we didn't understand this sort of thing. Those scientists like Mendeleev who foresaw the relationships between the different elements that make up the, the periodic table and realised that they were repeating themselves in terms of their characteristics and we could build this table and therefore work out the structures of atoms. These people had no fancy equipment. They had no fancy uh, person to go and ask, like a smart speaker or something like that. They had to work this out and they were painstaking. But they, they stand out because they were so special. And they plucked the lower hanging fruit. That's not to diminish their contribution, which was amazing. But there were many things which were fundamental, seminal, low-hanging fruit type discoveries that built the foundation of science. We've now ploughed a furrow to the point where things have now become extremely hard to do and hard to do as individuals. To sort of crack the next big problems in physics, for example, scientists have to spend three billion to build a machine like the Large Hadron Collider or spend three billion and send a probe into space in order to take pictures of the distant universe. So we're at a point now where it's much harder to solve big problems in science and make a big name for yourself by sitting in your study and thinking deep thoughts. You need a team and you need a very big budget these days because we're into the realms of science where you need those sorts of resources at your disposal. And that, of course, changes the way that we tend to practice science in the modern era. Let's talk about those big problems. Somebody writes, is time travel possible? And in a follow-up question, I think this is a loaded question, and if so, are there those amongst us who have brought new technology to Earth? That is Shane's question. Hi, Shane. Well, one cynic joked to me and said, yes, time travel is of course possible. We're going forward at the rate of one second every second. And we just haven't found reverse yet. Um, so time travel is possible because we are time travellers ourselves. By the end of this programme, we will all be about 30 minutes longer, although it might feel much longer for people who are bored. I'm only joking. No one gets bored listening to this programme, of course. But we can change the rate at which time travels. And you can do that by changing the rate at which you travel. And people have done experiments where you can send a clock, for example, at very high speed on an aircraft around the Earth, having synchronised it to an identical, extremely precise and accurate clock on the Earth's surface, which stays behind. When the two are brought back together after flying one of them around the world at high speed, you find there's a disparity and one of them has counted time differently to the other. So we can bend time. That's not the same as time travel, and we can also see back in time, which is when we gaze at stars which are sending light to us from far across the universe, the universe is so big that even though light travels incredibly quickly, 300,000 kilometres every second, when you're travelling over those sorts of distances, it takes a long time for light to arrive. And so we're looking back in time, when we see light arriving from stars that have 
sent that light to us from millions of years ago, you are seeing light and the universe as it was millions or even billions of years ago. And so in, in that respect, you're seeing back into the past, but you're still travelling forwards in time. So we can warp time, we can distort time, and we know about relativity doing that, and we use the principles of that all the time, because otherwise we couldn't get money out from an ATM machine, because they're using the time signatures sent down from space from satellites that are part of the GPS network, believe it or not, and you wouldn't know where your car is when you're driving up and down the road using GPS without relativity and warping of time. But can we go backwards in time? We don't think so. And as Stephen Hawking famously once said, I don't believe in time travel because otherwise we would have been invaded by tourists in the future. <laughs> okay. Um, so I guess that answers the question then as well uh, from Shane. The second part, are there those amongst us who have time traveled and have brought new technology to Earth? Probably not then is your answer, Dr. Smith. Well, I, I quoted Stephen Hawking and and, and I think he probably knew better than anybody if this was possible i mean he said it as an off-the-cuff ad hoc comment but i think he meant it that if it were possible then probably the implications are so profound and so obvious that probably there would have been mischievous people with the keys to the time machine that would have ended up wandering into cavemen environments and things like that to go and have a look and they would probably have left indelible marks behind that would have destroyed the integrity of time and and, and i think so many things unravel at that point that it's almost certainly not going to happen let's go to denise she's on the line and i think maybe another esoteric question denise we're listening hi hi um could uh, could Dr. perhaps explain to me how the monks in tibet levit- how is levitation done uh, hi, Denise. Well, the answer is that we can't rewrite the rules of physics, even in Tibet. And so the way that the world works is that it is massive and it has a gravitational field, which means that it attracts other masses to it. So your body is attracted to the Earth and that holds you down. So if you want to leave the Earth's surface, as Isaac Newton taught us, you remain where you are unless a force pushes on you. If you're going to levitate, there must be a force pushing on, pushing on you. So if, if a monk levitates, something must be pushing or pulling on the monk to do work against the gravitational attraction against the mass of the monk. Now, as far as we know, it's impossible to do this with your mind. There is no such thing as telekinesis, and scientists have subjected this to a lot of rigorous study to disprove this. And there's there's no way we think that except indirectly by your brain thinking I'm going to move my hand and reach out and move something, that you can project some kind of f- propulsive force that makes your uh, a brain able to manipulate things around you. That just doesn't happen, and people have not found any way that that could happen. So therefore, either uh, the monks have tapped into some other way of making themselves lift up, like a wire, or some invisible screen, or it's baloney. Morning, Clarence, and Dr. Smith Flores here from Worcester. Yes, Clarence, kid is boss. Yeah, first and foremost, I'm not a fan of these holidays. It really makes me feel depressed. I'm not sure why. I have a beautiful wife who I'm, I can spend time with. I have kids, even though they don't live with us anymore. I just want to find out why do I feel down this time of the year. That there's just, I don't... I don't get to to, 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 to to enjoy it. 
the other people just go all out. My my emotions, there's a different side to me when it's this period of the year. And even though I'm happy, I have enough to eat, enough to say even. But just my mood is not... Yeah, I only start feeling normal again towards 4th, 5th of January. Have a good job, bye. And thank you for that question. Uh, seasonal affective disorder, Amy tells me she suffers the same condition, Dr. Chris. I was just thinking precisely that, seasonal affective disorder syndrome, SADS, appropriately for short. Yes, we're creatures of habit, and some of us are not good at adapting our schedules, our body clocks, our routines to vary with the lengths of day and the seasons. It's mostly usually pronounced in the autumn, though, when days begin to get shorter and our exposure to nice bright light, especially in the morning, is more limited. It's not so common in summertime. And this is because we know that exposure to bright light, especially first thing in the morning, and light that's got a lot of blue in it, really matters for setting our circadian clock, our body clock. And that, in turn, sets... a unleashes the release of a flurry of hormones including cortisol which is our stress wake up get us going arousal signal which wakes up all the cells in our body and also coordinating the release of melatonin at night so we go to sleep at the right time now some people are very susceptible to a change in day length so as you go through the seasons and days begin to change in length and particularly as days begin to get shorter people do find a proportion of people, maybe one one person in five, may find that they begin to feel more miserable at that time of the year when this sort of flux is happening to the day length. Now, we don't know why some people are particularly susceptible, but they certainly are. It certainly exists, and it, and it exists all around the world, across cultures and that kind of thing. You can find this in, in different groups of individuals. So it's probably something to do with the genes that we carry because we know our body clock runs on a genetic program it's a small cluster of nerve cells in the base of the brain that are running a sequence of almost like a genetic domino effect where a gene turns on, that then through the production of its products turns on another gene which in turn turns on another gene that feeds back and turns off the first genes and this ticks round genetically like that taking about 24 hours but there are different forms or versions of those genes and different people have different combinations of those genes and they affect the ticking of their body clock and its susceptibility to signals like the wake-up call of bright light in the morning and the changing length of the day. And some people describe themselves as larks. They really like the morning. Other people describe themselves as owls. They really like nighttime and they find they're much more productive and better at night. So in the same way as we have larks and owls, we also have people who seem to have a particular susceptibility to seasonal affective disorder. So one way to solve this and try it, solving it is to use a light box. And doctors who define this problem in people, they give them a bright light box to sit in front of for half an hour or 20 minutes, eat their breakfast cereal, read the newspaper in the morning in front of this bright light source, lots of blue light in there, which helps to entrain their body clock better despite the signals that are different from the environment. But the other thing to bear in mind is it's not just about the body clock because other things affect us. We are creatures of habit. We do like a routine. Some of us are more rigid about our routines and feel stressed when we're not following the routine 
that we normally follow if we're forced to change or adapt our routine at different times of the year. And for other people, there are bad memories or bad connotations attached to some times of the year. And all these things integrate and mix and contribute to how we feel at any given time. And so I wouldn't peg all of this on one particular hook, all of this on one particular thing. I'd say it's probably a range of factors here. And one would have to unpick all of the different possible factors that might be at play that are making this case present this way. Uh, we're going to have to wrap up with one question. John wants to know about lab-grown diamonds, and it's a conversation that we've had on Cape Talk as opposed to mined diamonds. Are there any differences? I just want to find out lab-grown diamonds. Is it just as good as mined diamonds? Um, because it's becoming an in thing now, these uh, lab-grown diamonds. So just, well like to know is it just as good john in a hurricane there by the sound of it the answer is that yes lab grown diamonds are certainly a thing and they're very very high quality diamonds they're made usually by a process called vapor deposition so what you do is you use a source of carbon methane is often one source strip away the hydrogen and deposit the carbon atoms onto a seed or a special effectively uh, a, a key for the diamond to start to form and because of the structure of diamond where each carbon is connected to four other carbons and you just build a lattice you can build very regular crystals of very high purity very high quality diamond and these have a lot of industrial applications we use them for a whole raft of different things and they are grown industrially and used in laboratories for lots of different things that the the properties of diamond as a as an excellent uh, high strength material but also one that's a good insulator has various optical properties and so on they can be exploited and instead of having to go and find diamonds which are naturally hard to find which is why they're valuable you've got something which is very homogeneous very consistent and therefore very reliable that you can use for industrial and commercial purposes but that's not what we want to wear on our finger necessarily. And the reason diamonds were valued so highly before we could go and grow them in a laboratory was you wouldn't find them very often in nature. You wouldn't find high purity ones in nature. You still can, but they're not present in the sorts of quantities and qualities that we want for scientific and industrial purposes. But the ones that you find out there in nature have other properties that make them special to us as humans. They may have inclusions in them. So instead of just carbon atoms, they might have additional atoms here and there which introduce other properties. They introduce colour. They introduce other artefacts to the way they look. And these imperfections chemically would be a disaster for someone who wants to use them to make a laser or something where you need absolute purity but they're great on your finger and they cut beautifully and a really a master stonesmith who knows how to cut them in just the right way will produce a beautiful piece of jewellery that you say, well, that really is something that nature provided rather than something that just came off a production line in a laboratory. Uh, we have time. We don't have any commercial imperatives at this moment in time and I think we're going to end off on a high. Let's take a listen. Good morning. I hope you guys are well. A quick question. Could you please ask Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist, what are weeds and why do they grow when they where they shouldn't be growing? I thought it was uh, what is a weed. That's uh, Jason here from Brackenfell. Thank you. <laughs> yes, um, a weed is a human 
definition of a plant that's growing where we've decided it shouldn't grow. But weeds are plants like any plant, but we have a special definition of plants we like. We call them flowers and, uh, and shrubs and plants or crops and plants we don't like. We call them weeds. And one can become the other. One person's trash can become another's treasure. It's amazing that there are some things that some countries think they absolutely hate and abhor and other people grow them as a shrub in their garden. But a weed is basically a plant that has intruded or uh, encroached where it is not wanted. But it's, in all intents and purposes, a plant like any other plant. And weeds tend to be plants and shrubs that grow very well they're usually very uh, vigorous they usually set lots of seeds so they're very very fast at um, taking over an area which is why people tend to, to say they don't like them very much because they're, they're they're very easy to grow in that respect and they tend to push out all the stuff we do want but they're just plants like any other yeah is, is cannabis a weed as well <laughs> uh, it can I, be I, under oh, certain okay. circumstances <laughs> Yeah, we're going to have to rest it there. But a big thank you uh, to, of course, the Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingspodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Nachrichten. Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Gehe einfach zu amazon.de slash gesundheitpodcasts, um noch mehr rund um Fitness und Gesundheit zu lernen. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung.